When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app, you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's stamps.com. Code program. Can I just tell you one thing real quick? No, there's nothing off limits, so you don't have to like delicately put things. Like if you want to say something, just ask it. Like it's it's cool with me. I'm happy to do that. Okay. <laughs> Why don't we start by you just telling me your name, you know, who you are, where you're from. My name is Lori Kovach, and I'm John Orr's daughter. I have 99% fond memories. I mean, he was a good dad as far as I was concerned. Affectionate, you know, kind. My sister and I were both very proud of him. The fondest memories are going camping with him in the mountains, in the desert. He would ask us about our school and friends and things like that, but he didn't talk much about himself. Really didn't talk about details about his job or stuff going on in his life. I was about 18 or 19 years old, and I went with my boyfriend to his parents' house. His parents were sitting on the couch watching TV, and his mom said, oh, your dad's on TV. And I said, well, yeah, he, he has been before. You know, he talks about fires and stuff. And they said, no, I think you need to come see this. Captain John Orr investigated this and hundreds of other fires in Glendale, California. And when I looked at the TV, I saw my dad handcuffed, you know, how they protect their head and then sit him down into a police vehicle. That's what they were doing. So he was clearly being arrested. Today, the city's top arson investigator is himself charged with arson. With I just had no idea what that meant. There was just no forewarning. That was just truly out of the blue. And then I called my stepmom and she answered and told me, don't worry, it's just a big misunderstanding. Everything's going to be okay. We'll get it all worked out. But things wouldn't work out. Over the next few years, Lori watched as her dad was convicted of arson. Former fire captain John Orr was sentenced today. And put on trial for murder. If John Orr is convicted in this case, he could face the death penalty. We 100% at that point thought he was innocent and believed everything he said. Anything that came out of his mouth, we believed, because we had no reason not to. I was at work, and um, I was in like a cubicle. These were the old days. I had a little radio on top of my desk. I knew that the verdict was going to come down. You know, sure enough, they came on and said that he was found guilty of murder. I was devastated because that was the first point that I realized that he was gone. You know, he's not going to know my kids. He's not going to walk me down the aisle. It's done. 
Orr's lawyers asked Lori and her sister to testify on their dad's behalf during the penalty phase, which would decide if Orr would be sentenced to death. I said, okay, if my dad needs me, then I'm going to be there. I have to save his life. I do remember walking into the courtroom and it was really full. Obviously, I was nervous. I, it was just a crazy feeling to have to do that. And then I went up to the stand and, you know, of course, they swore me in and all that good stuff. I remember them putting a picture of my son up on the screen and them asking me if I would allow my son to have a relationship with his grandfather and if I would have a relationship with him and I spotted my dad on the right side. You know, we kind of locked eyes for a minute. He didn't have like a compassionate face or thank you for doing this for me or anything like that. He looked at me like I was just anybody, like I was a stranger. I'm Carrie Antholis, and this is Firebug. There was no clue to the madness that would cause him to set fires all over California. Fire is an arsonist's friend, his lover. It's his fire. The one guy that reminds me of John Orr is the BTK killer out of Wichita. He sat and planned and schemed his crimes. They're virtually the same guy, except one guy killed people, one guy lit fires. The psychopath, the guy that just does it, and he would never, never, never admit that he set that fire. They're just basically fire bugs. Chapter 9, Family Secrets. The reason I agreed to do this with you is not to keep John Orr's name in the public. I think it's important to analyze these people and understand that it's not just the killing. They hurt people all the way along in so many different ways. My name is Sharon Smith. I was raised in Los Angeles, so I kind of consider that my home. And that's where I met John Orr. I found a job at Sears and Roebuck in Glendale, California, and I was working in the cashiering office. He was working with the security department. This was his second job. He was in the fire department, which I found interesting. I found him to be overly charming and maybe a little bit overly gung-ho for his job. But other than that, he was very pleasant. It was the early 80s. At the time, John was twice divorced with two daughters and dating one of Sharon's colleagues. And every now and then, he'd come by the office where they worked. Pretty quickly... Sharon caught his attention. We started talking, and he found out I had daughters, and he had daughters. 
I was taking my daughters out for the weekend and he mentioned that he was taking his daughters out for the weekend. So I told him where we were going. He thought that was just a wonderful idea. He was going to take his daughters there too. I said, well, this is where we're going to be. If um, we see you, that would be nice. We did. And the girls got along fine. He had beautiful daughters. They were very sweet. That weekend, the two families went hiking in the desert. Orr's daughter, Lori, remembers that day, too. Sherry had three kids also. We were in the desert, and they gave each of us a, um, a whistle to blow in case we saw snakes. And lo and behold, we did, we did come up on rattlesnakes. So we blew our whistles, and we had to stay still, and Dad came over and, you know, got the snake away and you know, then we could pass or whatever. But of course, we never forgot that because we were so close to the rattlesnake. And um, afterwards, he asked me out on a date and I told him I didn't really have time to date. I was working two jobs at the time and I had very little time with my daughters. So he agreed that he would take his daughters and we would do kids activities. So that's how we started dating. He would take me to a couple of really nice places. I didn't get to do that very often. So it was very romantic and he turned on the charm. But I think on the second date, he was asking if we could marry. I wasn't ready to get married. I had just gotten divorced. My poor children. So I, I just told him, I, I, I'm not looking for marriage. <laughs> he would ask me every now and then, can we get married now? We dated for over three years and I was a little concerned about his sense of commitment anyone that was going to join my family, they weren't just joining me, they were joining my daughters. They had to be committed. And I wanted his daughter's approval as well, which I had hands down. I mean, they loved me and we loved them. After three and a half years, I think John Orr finally learned what it was I needed to hear for me to say yes. And unfortunately, I agreed. We had a lovely little wedding in Glendale. I kept it simple. I got little pink sundresses for all five girls so they could stand up and they had to agree with the vows and everything. Afterwards, we just had kind of a picnic there in the grounds, and um, it was beautiful, friendly. That part was lovely. For honeymoon, like I said, I was a real outdoorsy girl. And we camped and hiked on Mount Whitney. That was great. 
sitting by the campfire at night. But it did take him a very long time to get the campfire. I had to make the campfire. (laughs) I don't think it was four months. I went to work. And when I came home, I had noticed when I was undressing that his clothes, his furniture, his dresser, everything of his was gone. During the day, he packed up and moved out. There had been a little bit of stress, but no real argument or anything. And I assumed that whatever it was that we were stressed about, we would continue to discuss until we worked it out. His response was to pack up and leave. I was devastated. I'd never had that happen before. So I went to his father and talked to him and said, what is he doing? What What is this? And his father, who was a wonderful man, said that this is how his mother handled stressful situations. This is what she did to them when John was growing up. And this is how John handles situations. Gets up and walks out without any discussion or any indication he's going to do it. Just exit stage left. Two days later, Orr returned. And he told Sharon that he wanted to move back in. And I said, no, we have to talk about this. I said, you can come home. If you agree to counseling, and if you agree that this will never happen again, I don't want my children exposed to this. So he agreed. He came to therapy with me for a while. Then I ended up continuing alone. I told the therapist, I said, he's getting ready to leave. He's not talking to me. He won't go out with the girls and I. He won't interact with the family. He's just kind of shutting himself up. He's getting ready to bolt. And he says, well, what will you do? I said, shut him out. And I changed the locks. And that made him so angry. And um, things happened then. I lived in a small house near the freeway. Fires started happening on the mountains on the other side of the freeway. There was a fire behind the park. There was a fire down there. There was a fire over there. There was a fire right on that hill. They got so bad that embers were coming over onto our side. One time, I was getting ready to leave, take my girls out of the area. When he showed up at the door and said, hey, there's a fire right over there. Just wanted to check on you. I said, oh, we didn't even know it yet. And he said, we'll just wet down the roof. And pretty soon you would just hear fire trucks going from everywhere. 
John would show up and then fire trucks. I didn't realize what was going on, but John was angry. That's when the stalking started. I would have a visitor and within 90 seconds, he would show up at my door, just stopped by. Oh, you just missed Carolyn. Oh, really? What'd she have to say? Or, oh, you just missed Ronald. Oh, really? What was he doing here? When I would go shopping, I would turn around and he would be there. I would take the girls maybe to the library and I'd turn around and he'd be in the parking lot. Uh, That's how creepy he could be. Welcome to True Spies, the podcast that takes you deep inside the greatest secret missions of all time. Suddenly out of the dark, it's appeared Bin Laden. You'll meet the people who live life undercover. What do they know? What are their skills? And what would you do in their position? Vengeance felt good. Seeing these people pay for what they'd done felt righteous. True Spies from Spyscape Studios, wherever you get your podcasts. Have you ever felt like escaping to your own desert island? Jane Gaskin did exactly that, trading in the family home to begin a new life in the tropics. But she soon discovers that paradise has its secrets. I'm Alice Levine, and this is The Price of Paradise, the island dream that ends in kidnap, corruption, and murder. Wish you were here? Follow The Price of Paradise now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Is there any specific memory you have where you saw something about your dad that you just remember him in the moment? Well, um... This is John Orr's daughter again, Lori Kovach. It doesn't have to be a fond memory, right? Yeah, no, any any memories. Okay. (laughs) Okay, yeah. My dad had come pick my sister and I up from my mom's house because they were divorced and we would drive back and forth. Somewhere on the freeway, dad got mad at someone who had cut him off. Dad had the, you know, the light that goes on the top of the car that you could like put on yourself. (laughs) He, He did that and pulled the guy over. Then he reached over in front of us and took out a gun out of the glove compartment and then told us to get down in the floorboard and just stay there until he got back. We were scared to death. We didn't, we just didn't know what was going on. He didn't give us really any more information than that. It was just like, duck down and stay down. And that's exactly what we did. We didn't hear anything, first of all, no, no gunshots or anything. That was good. And then he got back in the car, put the gun back in and just kept going like nothing happened and we didn't say anything (laughs) I had someone that would come and knock on my door in the darkest part of the night and I was scared to death 
I didn't know if I should answer. I stood on the other side of that door and it was a glass door. I could see a shadow just on the other side of that glass. I could see how large the man was, large compared to me. I'm only five foot one and I have three children, three daughters in bed behind me and I'm the only thing between that person outside and my daughters. I had a 22 and I really didn't think I could hurt this person with a little 22. And I was afraid if I shot through the glass and just made him mad, I was in real trouble. He would try the door, he would try the door handles, the locks. I would just stand there shaking. And then he would continue to knock. It was terrifying out of a dead sleep to hear a knock on the door. And it was always in the darkest part of the night, like um, between two and four. And it would happen once or twice a week. I even put a sign up on my curtains so it could be read from the outside. Whoever you are, I'm calling the police. When I called the police, they asked if I never opened the curtains how I knew it was a man. And I thought, the way he walks, I could hear their heel on the sidewalk, um, the force of his knock, and I could see his huge shadow. The police felt that it was someone that had shift work and had seen the girls and I coming home or whatever. And then when their shift changed, they would come and knock on the door. That's, that's all they could tell me. It happened for about two years. Very terrifying. I think that was John Orr. At the time, I really didn't make the connection because when I would see him, he would be as sweet as he could be and sweet to the girls. He would bring them presents and he would offer to babysit them so I could go out with my girlfriends. And he continually asked me to remarry him. Sharon kept saying no. And weird things kept happening to her and the people in her life. This is something that I've never talked to anybody about. But after John and I separated, he would tell me that I needed to date. And I wasn't really interested in dating. But he would set me up with dates. And he told me about this really nice guy. He said that he owned a nightclub in Glendale. And it was a really cool place. And it had just opened. He told me he was so nice. Yada, yada, yada. So finally, I decided I would go out with him. And it was a very pleasant meal. You know, he was very nice and everything. After dinner, I said goodbye. 
and shook his hand. He insisted on a goodnight little kiss. So that was done, right? I told him it was a lovely evening and thank you very much. And I started to go to my car. And he said, wait, are you coming to my place or am I going to yours? I said, neither. I'm going home, you're going home. And he said, but I paid for dinner. I have no idea what impression John gave him of me, but this guy had plans for the whole evening. So when I told John, I said, what did you say to this guy about me? I said, he made me feel so bad, I will never go out with him again. In John's mind, and this is the way he told people after, is that the guy tried to rape me in the parking lot. The guy, his restaurant within a week burned to the ground. Looking back at the fires that Orr has been convicted of setting, Sharon remembers one other strange coincidence. He had a disagreement with my brother. I don't remember what it was about, but my brother and he had words. My brother lives like a quarter mile from the College Hills. And I'll bet you it wasn't a week until the College Hills fire. In the Los Angeles suburb of Glendale, a fire spread rapidly up a hill, destroying 50 houses. And that was scary. My brother was out watering the lawns and the roofs, and so were their neighbors. It came to within blocks of their house. You might remember that John Orr was the lead investigator on the College Hills fire. Investigators say arsonists often wait for hot, dry weather to act. It's an ideal situation for an arsonist to set a fire and have it done successfully. A supportive work environment can help everyone working in schools stay resilient. Just finding people that can reassure me that I'm doing my best and that there are people out there who understand me and can help me through these situations. You are not alone. Leaning on each other, uh, colleagues in education is, is essential. You have to. We take care of one another. Find what helps at cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. That's cdcfoundation.org slash how right now. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? <laughs> Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. No tomatoes? Yes. Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. Okay. <laughs> if these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. Years after Sharon Smith and John Orr's relationship fell apart, Orr remarried, and Sharon moved on with her life. She moved to another state and started going to nursing school. And one day, while she was in class, 
she heard her name being called over the PA. I went into admin and there they were, large gentlemen in gray suits, told me that they were from the FBI. They just shook my hand and I'm all smiles. I'm running through my head. What could they want with me? You know, I'm nobody. The administrator showed us to a a beautiful little conference room and we had total privacy. They were talking and pulling out their files and explaining what they wanted to discuss. I'm slowly coming to the realization that they're talking about John Orr. They told her that her ex-husband had been arrested for arson. And I'm thinking, no, not John Orr. He can't even start a campfire. And they didn't think that was funny. I was serious, but they didn't think that was funny. And then a lot of things started falling into place. John used to carry incendiary devices in his trunk at all times. He showed me how they were made. He taught me how to make them. You know, it was no big deal because he was not only a arson investigator, but he was also an educator. He would go up and down the coast doing lectures, and he was in charge of teaching his own fire department how to find these things. But I couldn't imagine John actually using them. But the more they talked, the more I wondered. Orr would be convicted on three counts of arson. He pleaded guilty to three more. And he was convicted of murder for his role in the fire at Oley's home center. With the help of the testimony of his daughter, Lori, Orr was spared the death penalty. But he would spend the rest of his life behind bars. For many years, you know, I had a relationship with my dad, which would consist of letters, phone calls. Um, you know, we could send him some care packages and we could send him money and magazines and books. Did you think he was still innocent at that point? hundred percent. hundred percent. It was still a mistake. You know, he, he was going to file an appeal. But at some point, something happened in me that made me think about my dad allowing my sister and I to testify for him to not get the death penalty. I was able to stop and look and see if that was me. Would I allow my child to do that? And the answer is definitely not. I I, I don't care. I'm not putting my kids through that. So I started to get a little resentful of him allowing us to do that. Lori started researching. She went through boxes of trial transcripts reading the government's case for the first time. And she read something else for the first time, too. Her father's book, Points of Origin. It took me a year to read because it was so crazy, like, odd, that I put the book down. I was like, oh, no, I'm going to find out something really bad here. I couldn't read it anymore for a while until I could handle the fact that I might find out that he's guilty. I was reading it knowing what I know and what they think that he did. 
So it was really difficult to read and think the sexual things they were talking about was actually my dad doing that while watching a fire, and it was pretty gross. If I was writing a fiction book, you could put any picture on the wall that you want. The pictures that were hanging on the walls were the actual pictures of the house where I went and visited him. Even the roommates were the same roommates that I remember him living with. That was all in there. So then I looked at the rest of the book that same way, going, oh my gosh, what if this is real? What if it's just like that? I was explaining to my mom that I had done all this research about my dad and that I was starting to believe now that he was guilty of these things they said he's done. And my mom said, well, I have told you that he's not a good person. She said, well, 30 years ago, before any of this ever happened, my dad had left for work one day and she saw him pull down the visor and a pack of cigarettes fell out into his lap. My dad didn't smoke. He was always an adamant non-smoker. So my mom knew it was weird that he would have cigarettes in the visor. When he got home from work that day, my mom questioned him on why did he have cigarettes? And he admitted to her that he was lighting small brush fires and that she shouldn't worry about it because he was controlling it and making sure that nobody was hurt. Nobody came across John Orr that hasn't been scarred. My children, his children, his wives, not to mention the people that he's physically hurt or terrified by fires. The people that had to run for their lives. All those people have been touched by John Orr. Scarred and hurt. I've had PTSD because of John Orr. It's been all these years, and I've had two episodes in the last couple of years. So it's getting much better. But when you wake up in the middle of the night with a panic attack that turns into an asthma attack, that's pretty scary. And all it is, my dream, all it is is that I've opened the door and he's standing there. I hope that. He stays where he can't hurt anybody anymore. Okay, Ryan, what are we going to talk about? I mean, I guess the first question I want to ask is, is there any part of you now that feels that Orr might be innocent? No. I mean, I haven't had any reasonable doubt that he's guilty for a long time. But it's really only in the last two years, since I reconnected with him, since we did all this research, talk to all these people, and especially since we've spoken with both Lori and Sharon, that I've come to a very firm conviction that he's guilty of everything that he's been convicted of. Do you think you'll tell him what you think? I think I have to, right? John, I think it was you. To believe you're innocent now, I have to believe that you're the victim of an elaborate conspiracy, and I just don't. That's next week on the final episode of Firebug. Firebug is a production of Truth Media in partnership with Sony Music Entertainment. 
It was created in association with Crime Story Media. This episode of Firebug was produced by Neil Denatia and Ryan Swikert, with help from Michelle Lance. Ryan Swikert is our senior producer. Story editing by Mark Smerling. Carrie Antholis, that's me, is your host and executive producer. Kevin Shepard and Alessandro Santoro are associate producers. Our archive producer is Brennan Reese. Scott Curtis is our production manager. Fact-checking by Austin Thompson. Michael Blumenfeld did the mix. Sound design by Michael Blumenfeld, Neil Denatia, and Ryan Swigert. Music by Kenny Kusiak, John Kusiak, and Marmoset. Our title track is Young Men Dead by Black Angels. Continue the conversation with us online by tweeting at Firebug Podcast. If you've enjoyed Firebug, leave us a review on iTunes. It really helps other people find the show. And thanks for listening. <laughs>